Thank you, Rowena, very much. And, and well read, you, you, you catch some of the energy of that passage where God is just pushing out these promises, one promise after another, incredible promises that God makes to, uh, to Abraham. I'd just like to offer a prayer uh, as we consider this passage of Scripture together. We've just sung, On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for that rock which is Christ. And we thank you that Abraham, um, so many years, so many hundreds of years before Christ, rejoiced because he glimpsed the day of Christ. And we pray that we may enter ourselves into that rejoicing and into that faith which Abraham models for us. So that even though he was in so many ways imperfect, he trusted in you and it was credited to him as righteousness. May we walk with Abraham in the path of faith together. Amen. Well, if you have been attending regularly these past uh, few Sunday mornings and have been paying attention, um, you'll be aware that we have um, uh, reached in our series of uh, messages about the life of Abraham, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 20. Um, uh, and we are backtracking uh, for this last in the present series, as you will be aware, to chapter 17. So uh, let me just... Uh, tell you where the story has reached so far. We met Abram, as his original name was, we met Abram in chapter 12 when God called him from his home in Ur in Mesopotamia and he traveled through uh, the, what would become the promised land, Canaan. And God made uh, promises to Abram uh, then and there, including that uh, through him God would bless many nations. Um, in chapters 13 and 14, we have uh, some accounts relating to Abram and his nephew Lot. And in chapter 15, God establishes his covenant with Abram. Literally, he cuts a covenant with Abram in a rather graphic way. Now, God has all along been repeating the promise to Abram and to Abram's wife, Sarai, that uh, they would have uh, descendants. And yet they are becoming increasingly old, and Sarai is barren. So by the time we reach chapter 16, Abram and, uh, uh, and Sarai together uh, conclude, she's not going to have children, we better do the second best thing, and Abram to have a child by uh, Sarai's uh, servant, uh, Hagar. And thus Ishmael is born at the end of chapter 16. And so by the time we reach chapter 17, we are 13 years further down the line. Remember Abram and Sarai becoming older and older, still barren, still just with Ishmael um, as, uh, as, a, as a, a descendant of Sarai, but not of Abram. And God still puts out these promises. That's the background then, but I just want to bring somewhere else, uh, just uh, briefly. Some years ago, a book was published with that title, The God I Want. And in that book, a number of thinkers and writers were invited to write about the kind of God, if any, that they would be prepared to believe in. 
It is, of course, an exercise in, uh, in presumptuousness, uh, but that's what happened in that book. Uh, an intriguing uh, uh, book, uh, a, uh, uh, a presumptuous book as well. Because we need to ask, what would happen, not so much if we set out what kind of God we could believe in, but what would happen if God himself declared to us, this is who I am, this is what I like, this is what I'm for, this is my plan and my purpose, this is my name. In other words, what would happen if God introduced himself, as he does at the beginning of Genesis chapter 17, by the way, please make sure you have a Bible open in front of you, Um, uh, it's just page 16 and 17 in the church Bibles, Genesis 17, where in the first verse, uh, God uh, appears to a 99-year-old Abram, still childless Abram, and says, this is who I am. I am El Shaddai, to give the original name, translated God Almighty, God the All-Sufficient One, a name, a very ancient name for God, that only crops up in the context of God's promises of descendants. Something very rich, then, about that title, certainly something very majestic about that title, too. So beginning with that self-declaration... Stop asking yourselves what kind of God would you like. And kind of we have a tendency to do that, don't we? Have you heard people say, have you heard yourself say, well, my God would or my God wouldn't, or I like to think of God as this, or I like to think of God as that. Let's listen to God as he declares not only his, one of his names, uh, but also he declares his nature, his character, and his purpose within this chapter. So four things then about God as revealed in this chapter. First of all, he's the God who writes his own job description. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever been in employment and had the opportunity to write your own uh, job description. It doesn't usually happen. (laughs) Somebody else will write, write it for you and you have to conform to it. But you and I are not God. God writes his own job description. He says, this is what I'm going to do. This is my work. This is my job. In various kinds of ways. First of all, verse 3, he establishes his covenant. So whatever else his covenant is or is not, is not a contract between equals. God signs here, we sign there, we've agreed. All the way through, God says, it's my covenant that I establish with you. In fact, is referred to 13 times as God's covenant in this one chapter. And then the more detailed wording is precisely the same, where God says, this is what's going to happen. As for me, that's verses 3 to 8, then he turns to Abram and says, as for you, and that's the point, amongst other things, where Abram, in order to, uh, to, to mark this pivotal point in God's story with him, God gives him a new name. Abraham becomes Abraham. Mighty father becomes becomes the father of a multitude. I mean, just think of it. When Abraham, as he's now called, goes around and people sort of say, so what's your new name? And And he says, my name is Abraham. 
But that means a a father of multitudes. And Abraham is still old. He's still childless. The promise, the unbelievable, almost impossible promise, is built into his name. Sarai is not forgotten, as she might well have been, a woman might well have been forgotten in an ancient covenant or an ancient treaty. Sarai is not forgotten. She gets to change her name too. I think Sarai and Sarah both mean princess, a lofty enough title. Uh, But still, she has a change of name to mark her change of role too. Because God has, will bless her and, is, uh, and, and, and she will give, through Abraham's husband, um, many kings will come, many nations will, will be born. Nor has God forgotten Ishmael, the son of Abram, Ab- Abram and the maid, the servant, Hagar. All this time, all these 13 years, Abram must have thought, ah, I've got no sons. The chosen one, God's chosen one, surely must be Ishmael. And Ishmael's now, now 13. And, uh, and when God sort of says, well, no, you're going to have a son of your own, Abraham is incredulous. And he thinks, well, what about Ishmael? And God says to him, I haven't forgotten Ishmael. He, too, will be blessed. So there's a wideness in God's blessing there that um, isn't just for Abram and Sarah and their direct line, but of others too. But the key point here is, as you can see, it's God who writes his own job description. It's God who says, this is who I am, this is what I'm going to do. It is to that extent one-sided, unilateral. The second thing I think we find in this passage is that, uh, about God is that he's uh, the God who keeps his promises forever. This chapter, as uh, uh, previous chapters have been, are full of promises, uh, but these are amazing. Uh, God repeats in verse 4 uh, to, Abram, uh, to Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. Yeah, you're childless yet, but you'll, you'll be the father of many nations. And verse 7, I, will, I establish with you, not just a covenant with you, but an everlasting covenant. Let's hang on to that word everlasting. A covenant that will never finally be broken. Uh, Abraham's descendants would break that covenant in a variety of ways. And they will live with the consequences of that. But God never breaks his promise. In a sense, the most beautiful of all these promises, to my mind, is when God says, uh, declares himself to be, I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And just think what it means for God, the maker of heaven and earth, to say to people such as us, I will be your God. I'm not sure there's any greater, more profound declaration in the whole of Scripture than for God to say, I will be your God. I'll be your God in my wisdom to guide you. I will be your God in my power to protect you. I will be your God in my goodness to do you good. I will be your God. And then uh, God declares 
that he will give the whole land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. The whole land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. So note the everlasting nature of these promises and the fact that God, being God, will not go back on his promises. He will go forward from them, as we shall see in a moment, but never go backtrack from them. Third thing about uh, this God, as he declares himself in this chapter, is he's the God who marks his people out as his own. And so we're talking about the right of circumcision. Now, if I was in what used to be my day job and lecturing student nurses, you'd have something more graphic on the screen at this stage. <laughs> but I think on a Sunday morning <laughs> with a mixed order or congregation, this will have to do. The, the, the right of circumcision, the removal of the male foreskin uh, on the organ of reproduction, it has something in common, something in common with a wedding ring as a mark of commitment, a declaration of commitment. And certainly in this passage, we see uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, mark of circumcision um, in that most intimate part of a man's anatomy uh, stands as a permanent reminder of God's promises. Ordinary happening on the eighth day after birth, there is thereafter a permanent reminder uh, that God has made these promises to Abraham, Abraham and his descendants. Again, as with Ishmael and the promise to bless Ishmael, foreigners are not, uh, are not excluded. In verse 12, it's uh, those uh, foreigners who are living with the family are also to be subject, uh, as uh, servants, for example, are to be subject to circumcision too, as a mark that they too may belong to the people of God. And it's not optional. Now, circumcision was not a new thing amongst the uh, nations of the ancient Near East. Uh, many nations practiced circumcision, but it was ordinarily done in the teenage years of a boy's life, either to mark puberty or as a prelude to marriage. The difference here, then, is to take a fairly familiar piece of minor surgery and give it a new meaning. Ordinarily, so the grown-up men uh, at this stage would have to line up <laughs> at the minor surgery tent and be done. And from then on, the, uh, on the eighth day of after birth, each uh, little boy would be circumcised uh, too. So to circumcise an eight-day-old boy means this, amongst other things. We're not saying to that little boy, we'll leave you to grow up, think talk to people, read a few scrolls and this kind of thing, and then when you're good and ready, you make up your own mind about God, whether you'll believe or not. That's not the way it works here. No, the parents are to include that little baby in the covenant. And it's for the same kind of reason that many churches, including the Church of England, includes provides for the baptism of children on behalf of their parents, or the, the parents make uh, promises on behalf of, of the child, to show that there is a, a, there is a covenant with the family and not just with those who have yet believed. Now, the church also has 
uh, ceremony for confirmations, where the child, in due course, makes up his or her own mind about that. But the child is, is recognized to be a member of the co- God's covenant from an early age in the Church of England and in many other churches uh, too. That's a bit on the side. So God marks his people out as his own by the ceremony, by the minor surgery of circumcision. The fourth thing that we find, I think, about, uh, about God from this chapter is that he's a God who asks for nothing and everything in return. Let's have a look at that together. So much of this chapter is about what God does, what God says, what God declares, what God promises. And so verses 3 to 8, right at the beginning of the chapter, about God saying, I, as for me, I will do this, I will do that. It's all from God. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, as Rowena read, just how much talking God does in this chapter and how little talking Abraham does in return. It is God giving, giving, giving. And that comes first. But there is also a required response where God says to Abram, as for you, you must keep my covenant. But the order is critical. God gives and we respond. The order is critical. Now I need to move on to the question about how do we get from there to here? Since so many of these promises are marked out as being of everlasting significance, they must be of significance today. So the question is, how do we get from these promises that were given so many centuries before Christ, how do we get from them to everything that's happened in Christ and since Christ? It's a critical question, I need to say, as I said a few weeks ago, that we're touching on something that not all Christians agree on. And there's, if one just looks at the news yesterday, something in the news uh, about a relationship between um, America's donation, uh, contribution towards uh, Palestinian (coughs) refugees, and the United Nations and Israel weighing in with their views on the matter. And then today, more in the news about alleged anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. The issue about how Christians, how we all think about Jewish people, about Israel, about Palestinian people, and this sort of thing, is, is, is hugely important. And I say Christians do not always, uh, do not all agree on this, and there is vigorous debate and sometimes ac- acrimony amongst Christians. Uh, so I need to just to, to say to you that some Christians who are better Christians than I <laughs> would not uh, agree with everything I'm now about to say to you. But... I'm not giving it to you without thought or preparation or careful prayer. I'll give you my understanding from Scripture. I say that the covenant, this covenant with Abraham, is fulfilled in Christ. Any explanation we we give of these Old Testament promises about the covenant, in my firm view, 
need to be read, understood, and applied in the light of what God has done decisively in Christ. In fact, I'd go further than that and say the covenant is not only fulfilled, but extended, enhanced in Christ. It never becomes a less than God promised to Abraham. It does become a more than. According to the New Testament, when we review the promises made to God's people by God in the Old Testament, they are all yes in Christ. They all find their focus and their fulfillment. Every one points to Christ. And the New Testament will put that point in a variety of ways. Do you remember uh, the end of uh, uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24? Two sad people. I almost said men, but I think they might well have been man and wife, walking on what we call the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion. They don't realize that Jesus has risen from the dead, but actually Jesus, unbeknownst to them, as Jesus, appears to them. And they say to this man, we had hoped that that one who just died, been crucified, would be, would, would be the redeemer of Israel, would, would restore, Israel uh, restore the people. And Jesus starts with the scriptures, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he shows them from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So all these promises find their focus in Christ. The people of God also find their focus in Christ. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 defines the people of God in two linked ways. Defines the seed of Abraham in two related ways. Paul first says, look, the word seed is singular. It's referring to Christ himself. Christ is the seed, the descendant of of, of Abraham. But then he goes on immediately to sort of say, and also all those Jewish believers and Gentile believers alike who are in Christ. The people of God, uh, the sense of Abraham, are Christ and all those who are in Christ. And most controversial in a, in a sense, I suppose, it what, is what counts as the possession that God bequeaths or God gives uh, his, his people. Um, in Genesis 17, uh, 17, it was the land of Canaan, the entire land of Canaan. When the New Testament comments on such things, it broadens that out immensely. So that in Hebrew it says that even Abraham was looking, who, who never possessed more than a single field in the land of Canaan. Isaac didn't inherit Canaan either, nor did Jacob. They were all living in faith, looking forward to a better country says the writer of the Hebrews, which the writer of the Hebrews calls a country, a heavenly country. I think a heavenly country doesn't mean a country in heaven, but rather a country for heaven. I believe that when the New Testament, the gospel, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's saying, that's God's country now, that's God's God's territory now. And, And Jesus sends his disciples and us into the world to make disciples of all nations to enhance and to build the kingdom of God. And that's not the end of the promise. 
because then we look forward to um, not an eternal life in heaven. That's not. That's too ethereal. That's too disembodied. What the Bible actually promises is a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That's the ultimate promise that God's people will inherit. It might be thought that the one thing, one place where there is clearly a replacement of one thing by another is where circumcision is the mark of Old Testament faith is replaced by baptism, the mark of New Testament faith. Even that is not a replacement. According to Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 2, he says, actually, if you're a Christian, you have been circumcised. (laughs) Circumcised in the sense that you have got rid of your old nature, your, your your old sinful nature. It's that kind of circumcision. Having been, see how closely he links the two things together, having been buried with him in baptism. So even baptism is not a replacement of circumcision but a fulfilment of it. Did I say that God required requires of his people nothing and everything? Well, yes, and the New Testament will make that even clearer. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. Do you know that for yourself? Have you received that gift of grace? Have you exercised that gift of faith and received as a free gift the eternal life that God offers in Christ? But then two verses later, Paul will say this, for we are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you see how God requires of us, expects from us nothing, and everything. It's the cart and the horse thing. (laughs) Faith is the horse that pulls. Good deeds, good works are the stuff we put into the cart that's pulled by faith. And don't let us ever get them the other way around. Otherwise we start thinking in some way we can be good enough for God. Abraham was never good enough for God. We've heard in recent Sunday mornings how imperfect his faith was. But his faith was sound and sincere, and it had the right object. He believed God, and it was counted to uh, to him as righteousness. So one thing that all Christians can agree on is this summons to Abraham and to us all, to walk in the steps of Abraham, to walk before the Lord faithfully. God says to Abraham, "You you need to be blameless. That doesn't mean perfect, but it means to have integrity. We need to pray for God, pray to God that he, he'd give us a sound faith and give us integrity of heart and life. And then we'll follow him faithfully, if albeit imperfectly, as uh, so many uh, uh, centuries ago his servant Abraham did. Let us pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the promises that you gave to Abraham and for the way in which they are all wonderfully fulfilled in Christ, and how we can reap the benefits of those. May we so overflow in love and gratitude that we earnestly seek to share this good news with everyone with whom we come into contact. In Jesus' name, amen.